You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're calling Firm Foundation. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. Like many of you, Ellen and I really enjoy watching the Olympics. And you can have your favorite Winter Olympics fine. We really love the Summer Olympics. You can go through all the sports of that, and we really enjoy that. One of the things that Ellen really enjoys that now I enjoy would be gymnastics. I I don't know anything about gymnastics. I've never done gymnastics. I couldn't do gymnastics today if I needed to. But we can enjoy watching it. And over time, you kind of learn kind of what they look for and how they do it and the right way to do it and so forth. Well, years ago when the Olympics were in Beijing, we're watching the the female gymnast go and and this American gymnast who was supposed to perform well, she is doing well, she's on the floor exercise, she's doing all the things that she's supposed to be doing and doing great. And to my novice mind, she's doing great. So when she finishes the floor routine and she does her, she stands up, she ends up with a perfect 10. I mean, it's great. Now, what I thought was good Actually, somebody who knows something told me it was good. So they go back into the studio, and Bob Costas is sitting there with her coach. And there's this moment where Bob Costas is talking, and he says, hey, you know, as fun as it was to watch her, it's an equal fun sport to watch her coach cheer for her. So what they had on in the studio was you had Bob Costas sitting next to the coach. Behind the coach was a big screen, and he's looking forward at another monitor that has the routine going on. And so we're now watching her coach cheer for her. And so as it's going on, it's this incredible scene that you can imagine. It's only somebody who loves this competitor, who is invested in this competitor, who has trained this competitor, could have this much emotion. Because in it, you're watching him go, beautiful, beautiful, you got it, you got it, you've got it, do it, do it, beautiful, beautiful, Olympic champion. And he's laughing, Bob Costas is laughing, and I'm laughing. And I'm thinking about this reality. Do you have somebody in your life who's cheering for you like that? Wouldn't it be great if we all had somebody that was so invested in you that they had built into you, they love you, it's really for your best, but they are all in on you and they're cheering for you. Wouldn't we love to have that person? I think about my own kids growing up. Maybe you've had this moment where somebody come, where a child comes to you and says, hey, watch me, dad. Watch me do this. I'm like, okay. You know, it starts really young. It's like, hey, I went to the bathroom and the toilet. Come cheer for me, right? And you do it. You're like, oh, that's great. You know, and then you move up like, hey, dad, watch me put up the blocks. And you put up the blocks and you, and you cheer. And I wonder if there's not some idea for us to consider who is it that wants time with you to cheer you on because they love you, they're committed to you, they're invested in you? Because I think we got a passage that wants to tell us about that today. So if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to pick up on this theme. And as you're turning, we've got something that's going on in this passage. In in chapter 5, we saw Jesus say is that unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, then you will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and I'm sure that the listeners are sitting there and they're like, 
righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the scribes. There's just no way. I mean, these were the professional Christians. There's no way we could even be better. But when he says you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, well, I better try. I better figure it out. And part of what we understand is he's trying to draw us to the fact that we need a spiritual birth. We need something that we can't just do in our flesh. And so he begins to talk about if we're going to have this righteousness, what does it look like with other human beings? And so he says these bold statements. You've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. And you're like, okay, I might be okay there. And then he says, but if you hate somebody, you've murdered them in their heart. And you're like, okay, well, that's a little bit tougher. I don't don't know that I measure up. So we go through that whole section through the rest of the chapter, and he's talking about the way that we interact with other people. Chapter 6, he's going to do a shift. We go from a righteousness that moves from just dealing with people to a righteousness that deals with how do we approach God. And so he's going to have some strong statements in this passage. How do we relate righteously to our God in heaven? And so as he comes to this, I'm going to tell you now, because he's going to do this with three different things that are part of the Christian righteousness. And as I say that, he is talking about it in terms of behaviors, things that we might do. And so he's going to set up several comparisons. It's either this or it's this. It can't be both. It's either this or it's going to be this. What do I mean? Well, he's going to set it up this way. You could have an audience of random humanity, people, or you can have an audience of the Lord, an audience of many or an audience of one, okay? And then he says, there's a reward based on that level of righteousness. And here's the thing. The reward is going to be tied into how you answer the first question. Do you want the audience to be the crowd or do you want the audience to be the Lord? Here's what happens. He says, you'll get a reward, but if your audience is the crowd, then your reward will be earthly. If your audience is the Lord, then the reward will be heavenly. If it's the crowd, your reward will be temporary. If your audience is the Lord, then your reward will be eternal, okay? So he's drawing these up to it's either this or it's this. And he's gonna make it really painfully clear for us. It can't be both. If this is what you're after, don't expect your rewards to be over here. If this is what you're after, then you most certainly will get the rewards that the Lord promised you. And then he's going to go a step further because we're talking about righteousness, things that that begin in the new heart is this righteousness. He says, if you're going to try to do these behaviors and have it look like righteousness, he's going to say you're a hypocrite. Now, here's the thing. That word hypocrite comes from a Greek word that would have been the word for actor, somebody who's acting like something they're not. You and I see it all the time. Well, where they say, they, they just do it so they look the part, it really isn't here. They just want to look that way versus if we're here, then you're the authentic disciple, okay? Two crowds, excuse me, two audiences, the crowd or the Lord, earthly, heavenly, temporal, eternal, hypocrite, or authentic. So with that said, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. This verse is going to serve as the thesis for the rest of our passage we're going to look at today because he's going to break it down into three areas. But here's the thesis statement. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
Okay, so there's your thesis statement. So let's just go back and look at it. Beware of practicing your righteousness. See, we're talking about behaviors. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So which circle? Well, that's this circle. That's the crowd. Be careful when you do your behaviors that have the appearance of righteousness, but you do it for this crowd over here. If this crowd is the audience that you're looking for, okay, the, the words are be careful of that, beware of that, because if that's the crowd that you're living for, the audience you're living for, you will have no reward from the Father who's in heaven. When this is how we're living our lives to please this group of people, why would we expect that the Lord would reward you when you're living your life over here for this crowd? Jesus, I think it's being really kind of pragmatic here. Choose your audience and then live according to your audience. But know this, the rewards that you will receive will come from the audience that you choose. Now, that doesn't seem like that's that difficult to believe. And yet, here's the reality. He's about to take us through three different things. And if we're really honest, I bet you at some point we've all been caught in that drama that's like, I want to be over here, but you know what? The pull over here is just so strong, but I want to be over there. And so I think there's this incredible heart that Jesus wants to tell us about what we need to understand. So let's move into it so that we see what's going on. Look with me, if you would, at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their rewards. Okay? So let's stop. There's your first one. If you're going to live so that you give to the needy in such a way that you're doing it for the crowd to applaud you, then okay, that's what you can do. He says they're hypocrites. You're just acting. Hey, watch me. Look at this gift that I'm giving to care for the poor. Jesus would say, you don't care for the poor. You want the applause. That's all you're after. And so he says, you know what? You'll get it. Matter of fact, if you would allow me to give a little paraphrase where it says, truly I say to you, that word truly there in, in the original language is what we get our word amen from. Here's my paraphrase. I think Jesus is saying, no, really. There will be no reward in heaven if you're giving so that you get the applause of the crowd. I'm not just saying that. I'm telling you, if that's your heart, that you want to just sound the trumpet, and they're not really quite sure what that means. Is that an allusion to the Jewish feast? Maybe. But let me put it in the context of this. Imagine if at our giving boxes around the church campus, if there was a siren that went off every time somebody went and dropped some money in there. And you found people just drifting over there, and they're just like, and off comes a siren in the strobe, like, woo, woo, and that's going on. And you're over there like, yeah, I feel pretty good about myself. And everyone's like, wow, they're back at the giving box again. It's like their seventh time today, you know? And you're, they're clapping for you. I think Jesus is going to look at you and say, you know what? One, it's not about meeting the needs of, of the needy. That's about you. And so when the crowd applauds you, I'm not going to give you a reward for that. That wasn't even what you were after. You were after the applause. You got the, you got the applause. Why would I give you a reward too? So all of a sudden, when he comes back, he says, look, that's not what we're after. But when you give. You know, this began with when you give to the needy. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say if you give to the needy. It says when you give to the needy. He's not condemning giving to the needy. What he's condemning 
is what is our posture? Are we doing it for the crowd? Are we doing it for the Lord? Because he said, if this is what we're doing over here, no, really, I'm not going to give you a reward if you do it for the applause, because that's not what we're after. Matter of fact, when we come back, we see Paul share with Timothy, we're to do good, we're to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, okay? Those are the callings for every believer, is that we would look at our resources and say, Lord, how do I steward this? Not just to meeting the needs that you put in front of me and in my family, but how would you have me invest what you've given me or entrusted to me for your purposes, for other brothers and sisters in Christ in the world that are in need? How would you want to use that? Because then in doing so, we're storing up treasures, not just for ourselves, but a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. So that's always been there for the believer. So come back to Jesus' words. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. You can do it here for the crowd and you'll get the trumpets. There's no eternal reward. What's the reward? Well, it's temporal. They'll clap for you until they need another gift. Or we can give to the Lord in secret. Nobody else knows what you're even giving, but the Lord does. And now that's authentic. That is eternal. That's storing up treasures for what the Lord has given us. Matter of fact, he uses this. I don't think we should take this literally that your left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. I don't think that's literal. But I think he's saying that our giving should be so led by the Lord that we can divorce ourselves from the act so we can say, Lord, it's all yours anyway. How would you have me use this for your purposes? See, our church a long time ago made the decision not to pass offering plates because if you should give that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing, then at the, at the very least, you should be able to give so that the person to your left and the person to your right doesn't know if you're giving. Now, that decision's been there for our church for a long time. That's always been our heart. So how do you do it in a way that honors the Lord? Well, one, to do it in secret. So when he says that, we start thinking, all right, so how do we do that? What does it look like to say, Lord, what do you have for me in this? Now, there's all kinds of ways you can give. We'll talk about that in, in just a second. But every one of them is built on the idea that it is a spiritual act of worship for the believer to engage in with the Lord. Because we don't want to contribute and say, hey, Give to the Lord, but come do it in this crowd where this is your audience so that you can forfeit any eternal reward. That's not what we're after. So we have this statement. It's available uh, in lots of places. You can find it on our website. Individual giving is a form of worship. It should be done joyously, freely, generously, and without internal or external compulsion. That is a core conviction of our church. Consequently, we take no offerings during our services Instead, we provide offering boxes at various locations as well as your ability to give online so that all who desire to worship God through giving can do so freely and privately, not letting the left know what the right's doing. We do not want to hinder spiritual growth by resorting to man-made fundraising techniques that place people under pressure to give or create false guilt. Rather, we desire to provide everyone the opportunity to give voluntarily. That is not new to our church. The idea is this, we do not want people giving in a way that we tempt them to come into this audience. That's not what we're after. We want people to give and participate in what the Lord wants to do by going before him secretly. I tell you, I, it's so endearing to me when it happens, it may have been you at some point. When people come in and they're like, you know what? I don't know how to give to this church. I keep waiting for the plate to pass 
And somehow I like just zone out every Sunday when y'all pass the plates. What's the deal? And then we get a chance to say, oh, no, 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 we don't pass plates. And it's okay for churches that do. Our conviction has been the Lord will provide for us. And he has been faithful to provide for us. And he always has done that. And so we don't want to resort to other things that could be viewed as manipulative or in any way invites people to come into this circle. We're trying to avoid that. The Lord is calling us out of that. Truly, I say to you. So there's your first of them. That's the first of the three. Look with me, if you would, down at verse 5. He begins it almost the same way. And when you pray, he expects that we're praying. So he's not saying that there's anything wrong with this practice of righteousness. What he wants to address is the heart and how we do it. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Same word, same idea. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. See, he's following a formula in the same way. Look, I'm telling you, if you want to pray for the audience where it's the crowd. Now, how would you do that? Well, I'm going to use big flowery words. I may try to quote all the scripture I've ever memorized into this prayer. I may try to use three and four syllable theological words in my prayer. And when they clap for you and like, man, that's a good prayer. Then he says, truly, go with my paraphrase. No, really, I mean it. I'm not going to reward you for my relationship with you in this. If you're over here trying to get them like, oh, that's a good prayer. Choose your audience. You can't have both. And so when he comes back and says, look, you know what? Here's what I'm telling you. Truly, they clap for you. If your anticipated goal is for somebody to applaud your prayer, then let them applaud you. But that's not what I'm after. That's not what I want for you. I want a different relationship with you. Verse 6, but when you pray, present tense, it expects that we're doing this consistently. Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Okay. Let's not do it in a showy way. Let's do it another way. When my kids were small and we're starting to do the thing, you know, where you teach them about how to say the blessing and why you say the blessing, I had this moment where I don't know why. I'm, I can just be goofy this way. I found myself where I would start the dinner prayer with my kids by going, let us pray. I don't know why. It was dumb. But my daughter picked up on it, and one night she was like, Daddy, can I pray? I'm like, that'd be great. And so she said, let's hold hands. We bowed our heads, and I hear my daughter, let us pray. And I'm like, golly, look at what I'm passing on. I'm passing on this fake prayer life, Right? I've shared this story with you before. Let me tell you this other thing that's going on because I think when he says that they stand when they pray, we can talk about what's the proper posture when we pray. And I don't know that there's a proper posture because Scripture talks about several, like in Luke 18, the tax collector who was standing, he was lifting up and he's praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or in 2 Samuel, we had the King David went in and sat. So should I stand or should I sit? I, I think either are okay. In Luke 22, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
So, I mean, Jesus is kneeling. Does that mean that that's what we should do? Well, in Matthew 25, going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible. Well, now Jesus has done it two different ways. What's the right posture for prayer? First Timothy actually says to lift holy hands. Let me tell you this. I think that when it comes to the posture of prayer that Jesus is confronting is that he wants a spiritual posture that will dictate your physical posture. Because if all we have is a physical posture, we're over here. When there's a spiritual posture that says, you know what, I feel like I just, Lord, I'm so desperate, I'm, I'm on my face before you, that's fine. If you feel compelled to raise your hands and to pray with your hands up, that's fine. You wanna kneel, that's fine. But recognize this, it all begins with the spiritual posture of our soul and let that impact the way we live our physical posture as we do it. And as you consider your prayer life, I would encourage you, experiment. Do you find that one position works better for you than another? Do you find an environment that's better for you than another? I've shared this story before. A friend of mine that I got to help lead to the Lord called me one day. He was a big old guy. He was... played middle linebacker at a big 5A high school, and his knees were hurt and damaged and all that stuff that you would imagine. But it led to a phone call one day where he called me and said, hey, Lance, is it okay if I squat when I pray? I'm like, that may be the strangest question I've ever been asked in my life. I'm like, "Uh, what? And he goes, you know, I just, when I pray, I want to get on my knees. I feel like that's really, really important to bow before God. And he said, but my knees just hurt so bad. It hurts when I go down. It hurts when I'm on my knees. It hurts when I try to stand up. He goes, do you think God would be okay if I squat? I'm like, still the weirdest question I've ever gotten. But I remember saying, you know what? You do what you feel like helps you communicate with the Lord. And if you're on your knees and it's hurting so bad that you can't even have your heart on the Lord because you're in such physical pain, then yeah, sure, don't get on your knees. But isn't there something that for those of us that have been around the church and we've been around the Lord, they're like, what a silly question. But talk to me about the heart of a new believer that this is also new to him, that the physical posture was, I feel like I want to be on my knees because I want to worship my king in a subservient role where I position myself to look up to him and tell me that that's not a beautiful concept because that's not a person that's living for this circle at all. He's living in this circle saying, this is how I want to communicate with the Lord, and I want my physical body to match my heart. See, now all of a sudden that becomes a beautiful thing. So when we come into this and he says, you know what, I want you to go into that room and shut the door. I want you to be in secret. I, you know, it's kind of interesting. They, they talk about the fact that this probably was somewhat of a storage closet in the middle of the home that he's probably thinking where, where you would keep all the supplies of the home, maybe the, the food that you would bring the animals. It wasn't a place people would go or migrate to. It was a private place. The idea being, you know what? You go find that place where you and I can just be together and pray without all the distractions of this world. You know, I find that in this world, they've started using a new term called continuous partial attention, that we live with a continuous partial attention. Nothing ever gets our full attention. And I got to tell you, my prayer life, maybe yours would be the same, but I'll tell you, this thing right here, 
is killing me. The notification, I can be in prayer and then all of a sudden it's like, ding, and I'm like, oh, I wonder who that is. And imagine this, I could be alone with the Lord in prayer, the sovereign, my creator, the one who gave his son for me, I could be communing with him and I get a ding, I'm like, oh. I gotta tell you, for us to think through what it looks like to remove distractions, certainly when we pray, you know, these kind of images kind of haunt me a little bit, right? Is that you could be in bed 18 inches from somebody and they don't get our focus, or we could look up and say, I'm two feet from my child and I'm more engaged with that screen than I am my child, or we could just be walking through anywhere and we're missing the opportunities that God's giving us. We were talking with a friend of ours, and he was talking about his son walking on a college campus, and he made the comment. He said, you know, his son said to him, Dad, it's not like when y'all were in college. You said we'd make these great friends. You know how hard it is to make friends on the college campus now? He said, everybody walks with their earbuds in, with their head down, looking at their phone. We are missing life, and our relationship with the Lord is not going to, uh, it's not going to not be obstructed by that same thing. How do we get alone somewhere? I think that's part of what Jesus is saying. I want you to go into that room and I want you to shut the door. I want to just be you and me, free from distraction, nobody else. It takes away the possibility that anybody could applaud you because nobody's fighting to get into the storage closet of the house. So you just come and get along alone with me. And what happens? And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You know the reward? When you seek me, you will find me, and I will be with you in that moment. So verse seven, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Don't do that. They think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you even ask him. You know that idea that you would just have this rote prayer that you would just pray over like an incantation, that you just go through the motions of saying that? He said, that's how the pagan God's seek worship. They, they don't have a relationship with them because they're not real. But you know my name. You know my name. I told you my name, Yahweh. Come and relate to me. Come get time with me. I'm not going to be impressed with your big words. Matter of fact, the, the Greek word there actually sounds like our word babble. Don't come to me babbling with a lot of words, big words, flowery words, or even the idea that a lot of words will impress me. I don't need a lot of words. I know you. Matter of fact, I think that's why Paul tells Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Does that mean a lot of words? I don't think it means a lot of words. I think it means that we keep our posture open between, before the Lord, that we are just consistently over here, Lord, what would you have for me? Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, give me wisdom. I don't know how to step into this. Lord, I don't know how to have this conversation is that we just keep staying over here. And so now we pray without ceasing because we're getting a chance to see what's going on. Look back down with me. When you pray, don't heap up the empty phrases. Don't do that. Pray then like this. Now, this so often gets titled the Lord's Prayer. If that's what you want to call it, you can call it that. It's interesting. The Lord's Prayer probably is actually John 17. I think this is the disciples' prayer. And I make that statement on the basis of this. We're going to get to the thing where it says, and forgive us our debts. And Jesus never needed to pray for his debts to be forgiven. I think this is the disciples' prayer. And he's giving us a model for this prayer for the things that a healthy prayer life would entail. I don't think that every prayer has to have all of this. 
But a healthy prayer life will have all of this. But maybe not every prayer. And I think as we do it, recognize if we just pray this and go through the motions, then we're guilty of the same thing that the pagans and the Gentiles are doing to their God. So I don't think that he is saying, I want you to just pray these same words all the time because it gets back to the posture of our heart. And so when we come to this, recognizing this, we're going to see in the first part of this prayer, there's three petitions that are made, and all of them are made towards God. So if you would look down with me at verse 9, Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Now let's remember, if we're trying to live for this circle where we use big flowery words or big words or a lot of words, then we are trying to elevate ourselves so that we can get the applause. We begin the prayer with our Father, the collectiveness that before God the Father, we are all his children. We right away do away with and eliminate the need to be impressive in prayer because our basis is relationship with the Father, that one who is cheering us on, that one who's encouraging us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I want to praise you for your worth and your value of who you are. Your kingdom come. Father, I want your righteousness. I want your throne. I want who you are, what you are, and what you bring. I want that here. This world is fallen and broken, and I long for your kingdom here. Righteousness, that's what I want. Third, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I will submit to you because your kingdom, your will, that's what I'm after. We've got three petitions that are all based on God and calling God into the reality of our experiences. I worship you, I want what you have and what you bring, and I will submit to it. You're in charge, I'm not. Now that's a pretty strong prayer. And then we get the second half of the prayer. Three more petitions. Instead of God-based petitions, these become our-based petitions. And that fact that we're our Father, that we're all collectively united, here are the three things that we petition for us. They're all plural, right? Give us our daily bread. We're all in the same boat. We're all dependent upon the Father. Give us the daily bread. By the way, don't give us the weekly bread, the monthly bread, the annual bread, or the decade bread. Because we might drift and we might actually miss him. So we come back to the daily bread. Father, keep me close, keep me dependent, keep me seeing your goodness, keep me seeing your hand, because every time I come to you, I'm gonna recognize, one, I worship you, I want your kingdom, I want to submit to your will, and the fact is, I'm dependent upon you. The second we, forgive us our sins, because I have rebelled, I am a rebellious person, I have sinned, I've violated what you have said, and I've walked away from you. And I need reconciliation. I need to be forgiven. And then third, lead us, not into, to, lead us not into temptation because we are so susceptible to being led astray. Some of it's just because we're distracted and we don't see, we don't think, we don't process very well. But when you put these things together, there's our prayer. And lead us not into temptation. You know, that last line, but deliver us from evil, that was always such a strange thing I felt when I would pray it. I'm like, I've, that's not always been my, my case. I've been subjected to evil. I've chosen evil. Evil's been done to me. So when I'm praying, deliver us from evil. And all of a sudden, sitting there, and, and when you look at the original, it, it's really interesting because it's obvious that it's a pronoun. Remember the good, the bad, and the ugly? That's not three adjectives. 
That's talking about three different adjectives ascribing the value of a person or their character. This prayer at the end is, but deliver us from the evil one. We're going to walk through this life. We're going to be subjected to evil. But the prayer is, Father, protect me. Deliver me from the evil one. And if you know him, he's already done it. Because the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately one day the presence of sin have all been destroyed. And we will go home to the Father. And all of it will be over. He has already delivered us from the evil one. See, now all of a sudden we've got this prayer. And you say, hey, when you pray, I want you to have these elements in your prayer. I want you to have petitions for me. I want you to honor me for who I am. I want you to want what I want. I want you to, when what you want isn't what I want, I want you to bow your will to what I want because of my kingdom. I want you to recognize that in and of yourself, you do not have the capacity to provide your own daily bread. Come to me for that. Come to me. Let me forgive your trespasses. Let me do these things for you because I'm the only one who can deliver you from the evil one. And that's my role. So he comes out of that and we get these really, really strong words, right? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you. Uh Uh-oh, how scary are those words? I think this. I don't think that this is being said in an absolute sense. He's already told us in chapter five is if we come to worship and we know somebody has something against us, leave our gift there, go and make it right, and then come back and worship again. I think the idea is, is that if we think that we can harbor bitterness and resentment and unresolved conflict against another person and not have that relationship be fractured, that it could happen where we would have, it would have no impact on our relationship with the Lord? I think the Lord's saying, no. If you've got fractured relationships here, now, if it, it depends on you, and as much as it depends on you, if it's at all possible, be at peace. It, it may not be your thing, but what's the posture of your heart toward conflict with other people? I think he's saying, you know what? Chase after, do the things you can do to redeem and reconcile relationships. But you and I can be so quick like, ah, yeah, they're mad at me. Yeah, I don't like them today. I'll maybe next year, whatever. And I think the Lord wants to say, no, no, no. The life of the disciple is a a life that seeks reconciliation, not only with the Lord. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, is that we've experienced that and that we pass that on to other people. So I think that's the second thing that he wants to tell us in this. Here's the third. When you give, when you pray, here's our third one. And this one may be the one that the New Testament church struggles with maybe the most. I don't know. Maybe you're great at this. And when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. There we go again. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. The phraseology is really funny there because it says this, and when you try to be unrecognizable, so that you can be recognized. Isn't that a funny phrase? You want to fast. So fasting is this idea that you would remove something. Uh, Usually it was uh, your diet, food or drink or how you would go about doing it. And there's lots of ways you could do it. You could do it a day of the week. You do it seasonally. You could do it for a couple of days in a row. There's all kinds of ways that people practice fasting. The main idea was this, is that whatever that dependence was, is that I would remove that from my life and I would trust for the Lord's gracious provision in that. Plus, the time that I spent fasting, I would dedicate that time in prayer or the pursuit of the Lord. So you got a couple of different ways that it worked. 
it used to always mean food and, and drink. Now you get people doing things like, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast from notifications on my phone. Is there's lots of ways you can fast. But the idea was this, and when you fast, don't look gloomy. Like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their face so that others can see. If you fast to be in this circle, well, then you want everybody to know how terrible you look. Ah, Lee, you look terrible. You haven't eaten in 17 days. It wasn't that long, but they wanted to really impress you, so they got the applause, whatever. But Jesus' words are not if you fast, but when you fast, and how do you do it? Because there's the word again, truly I say to you, these people who look miserable, they got their reward. Paraphrase, Jesus said, no, really, I'm not going to reward you for fasting if you're doing it. So everybody will look at you like, man, you look terrible. I've been fasting because I want to get close to God. No. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others. Come fast in this circle so that you get to know the Lord, pursue Him, look your normal self, take care of yourself, anoint your head, wash your face, because it's about the Father when you're in this circle. And so now all of a sudden, when we come back around, we can say, okay, so what do I do with that? So let me tell you, these are cases where we see people fasting in Scripture, okay? If you're like, I don't know what the newfangled idea about fasting is. It's not new. It's been around for a long time. And Jewish, Jewish folks would have practiced this part of their tradition as well. But let me just give you this list. And if you're going to be one that wants to write all this down, there's a QR code in your bulletin that will take you to this to the screen. You can get it there. But if you've ever thought, I need to strengthen my prayer life, fasting is a way to accomplish that, according to Scripture. I need God's guidance because I don't know how to move forward in whatever I'm facing. Scripture says fasting is a way to accomplish that. I need to express repentance and return to God. I've had some season of rebellion in my life. I've been in some sin patterns that I want to correct, I want to own, I want to come back to a reconciled relationship with the Lord. Fasting is a way that that would happen. To express grief, I am so beside myself in grief that this was a way to do that. To humble oneself before God. Just the sense of saying, you know what, Lord, I'm not all that. You are, I'm dependent upon you, so I'm going to enter into a fast. To express concern for the work of God. If you wanted to go into a fast and say, God, I don't like how this is going in our church, in our community, in our nation, in our world. Lord, we want you to do a good work here. Well, then this would be a way to do it to overcome temptation. You feel like temptation's been on your, on your tail and chasing you down and is about to envelop you? This was one of the ways that people would, would combat that spiritually, to express love and worship to the Lord. Lord, I'm going to give you all of myself. My total focus is gonna be on you. For deliverance or protection, the promised blessing of God as a spiritual discipline. Now, let me just ask you, as you look at that list, is there a more under- resource spiritual discipline in the Christian life than fasting. Because my guess is every one of us could look at that list and think, man, give me some of that. Give me some of that. I could use some of that. Matter of fact, there's three, four, five, six of those things that I would really benefit from. And the Lord comes back and he says, you know what? And your father who sees in secret will reward you. That's not this circle. That's this circle. The audience of one, Lord, what do you have? Now, let me encourage you. Giving, praying, fasting. Three behaviors, three behaviors that would be associated with righteousness. You can do it for the audience of the crowd. You can do it for the audience of the Lord. 
There are rewards for each, earthly, heavenly, temporary, eternal. These, you'll get some applause maybe for a little bit. This is you get the Father. This is the Father looking at you. Go back to that gymnastics coach that's looking at you and going, you got it, you got it, you did it. Oh, don't go over there. Stay over here with me. And you stay over here with you. And he's like, beautiful, beautiful, my child. And you know the reward? We get him. So many of us can be drawn over here. But the applause of men and women sure seems tempting. Really? Compared to this? Because the Father longs to look at you and me and say these words one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. So we've got a calling. You can live there. You can live here. You want the Father? There's only one choice. You want the blessings of the Father? There's only one choice. You want to hear well done? There's only one choice. And it's with Him. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.